This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In January 2001, British R&B singer Craig David was nominated for six Brits, Britain's biggest pop awards. These nominations came off the back of Craig winning three for three at the Mobos in 2000. If the Brits are the UK's answer to the Grammys, the Mobos is our equivalent of the BET Awards. His album, Born to Do It, broke the record for the UK's fastest selling debut by a male artist, a record he still holds to this day, and included two number one hits, Fill Me In and Seven Days. He looked poised to win big on the UK's biggest musical stage. Soulful Craig David looks set to sweep Brit Awards, predicted The Guardian. But when the night came, Craig left empty-handed. As he put it himself, Six nominations, no Brits for CD. This disappointment is not an isolated incident in Craig David's career. In this episode, we look back at how Craig David rode the wave of UK Garage as it was cresting and sailed his way to the top of the pop charts. We want to know why he was so successful and why that success didn't last. And through Craig's story, we'll ask what happens when a subculture goes mainstream. It's the 21st century. The future is now, now, now. The winner. What date is a computer going to think it is when we get to 2000? Welcome to 2020, a pop culture podcast by Message Heard, where we go back to the biggest pop culture moments from the year 2000. I'm Tara Joshi, a music journalist and also a pretty big Craig David fan. So I am very excited about this episode. And I'm Simran Hans, a writer, film critic at The Observer, and fellow Craig David apologist. Last week, we were joined by the excellent Charmaine Lovegrove to chat about the Zadie Smith novel, White Teeth. It was really fun to share our first guest episode, and we have more of those coming your way in the future. But today, it's back to regularly scheduled programming. So, Tara, why are we talking about Craig David? And why was he important in the year 2000? Firstly, his music combines some great genres. Pop, a little Spanish guitar, R&B, and something called UK Garage. We'll get into where this subgenre came from later, but what you need to know is that in 2000, UK Garage was having a moment. 
And though Craig wasn't strictly a garage artist, he was associated with that sound. And his music was everywhere, in many ways soundtracking the transition into the new millennium. In the first week of January 2000, he was number three in the charts with Rewind, a song by legendary garage duo Artful Dodger, which he co-wrote and performed the vocals for. As we mentioned at the top of the show, he went on to have two number one singles that year, Fill Me In and Seven Days. And he reached number three with his third single, and fan favourite, Walking Away. So what you're saying is, he got famous via Garage and started making more straightforward pop and R&B. Yeah, I mean, his first album definitely still had Garage undertones, and we'll talk about that. It's also worth asking whether Garage turning pop was sort of the beginning of the end for the first era of that sound. In 2000, something going mainstream was arguably more loaded than it would be in 2020. Exactly. And it's worth mentioning something we've spoken about already this series, especially in the episode on high fidelity. And that's cultural snobbery towards pop at this time, not least pop made by a young black artist. A lot of people were laughing at Craig David. But before we get into all of that, let's talk about what UK Garage looked like in the year 2000 and where Craig David and his debut album, Born to Do It, fit in. So, UK Garage, give me the short version. So, in the mid-90s, DJs in South London had taken soulful house music from the US and decided to make it faster and bassier. It was a whole kind of subculture. So it was, you know, the music being played in the clubs, but also the fashion of what people wore at that time. The aesthetic was different from um, Acid House, which at that time had been lots of baggy clothes. And Garage was sort of more marketed at women. It was sort of blingy, very aspirational in yeah. terms of how it looked. Yeah, so like Garage Girls is like an aesthetic where, you know, we're talking brands like Gucci, we're talking people with their champagne glasses, like people wearing loafers to the club, like no trainers. Like it's very glam. Exactly. It's like glam, it's classy, it's making the club like sexy in a different way. Mm. And I, I guess part of that comes down to with dance music at this time the association is that it's maybe not a very like women friendly space like a lot of this music is kind of aimed for the ladies yeah and so like this was all taking off in the mid 90s and i guess you could say it was really kind of cresting around 1999 you can't really talk about uk garage without talking about the iron apple scene so Ayanapa was the party capital of Cyprus. If we think about a sort of party city like Ibiza being the home of house music, Ayanapa was the home of Garage. And it sort of got popularised by a bunch of Premier League football players going over there and bringing their kind of London-based music, bringing black music from South London to this party capital. Sounds lit. <laughs> so by 1999, Garage was already massive. The tunes that came out this year, Shanks and Bigfoot, Sweet Like Chocolate, Teardrops by Love Station, and of course, DJ Luck and MC Needs A Little Bit of Luck. Craig David emerged onto the scene in the context of all of this music. In 1999, he had a little single called Rewind. 
And this is kind of how Craig David, a boy from Southampton, who I believe was sort of 18, 19 at the time, exploded onto the scene. I guess he had been on the scene in Southampton since he was like 14 years old. So. What does it really mean to be on the scene in Southampton? I though? will not take this disrespect for the South Coast. <laughs> um, but it's possibly a valid question. <laughs> Um, But so despite having his start with these big name UK garage producers, Craig David's sound was largely rooted in R&B and pop. But UK pop at this time had been pretty squeaky clean. Acts like S Club 7 and A1 were the big players. And the most successful R&B in the UK, meanwhile, was still coming from the States, or it was heavily influenced by American R&B. But Craig had been a DJ and MC throughout his teens and was working with Mark Hill, one half of Artful Dodger, to produce his album. So he was incorporating Garage into this sound and what he was doing was something very fresh. As Pitchfork pointed out in their 20-year anniversary review of Craig's debut album, Rewind's opening three seconds are an effective elevator pitch to everything attractive about Garage. This tune has it all. It's got the smooth vocals, it's got an irresistible bassy two-step beat... There's the sound effects, you have shattering glass, corks popping, and perhaps the most distinctive sound effect of all. Yes! (laughs) On Born to Do It, you can still hear nods to UK Garage. After all, a version of Rewind is included on the album, but it's still a pop record and it moves away from some of those genre tropes. So, let's talk about Born to Do It. Why do you think this album was so successful, Tara? Um, I kind of think it still holds up, and I know we'll get into that a little bit later, but I've been listening to it a lot leading up to this episode, and, you know, it it just is covering so much different stuff sonically, I guess, but I guess he's a teenager who's attractive, who's got a voice like Silk, and he's just being marketed to, yeah, swooning teenage girls. Yeah, I do think there is that kind of uh, element of his image as the R&B crooner, as in kind of like the D'Angelo mold, or maybe sort of someone like Usher. Um, he could be a UK equivalent of that. And then we didn't really have a UK equivalent at that time. You talk about listening to it again and sort of hearing those tracks and them holding up, like they are they are catchy. Yeah, he's a, he's really, really good with a catchy hook. Like, and... You know, he literally interpolates nursery rhymes on this. One, two, buckle my shoe. But actually, all the choruses have this real simplicity to them, which makes it really easy to remember them, which, you know, you could make fun of how simple some of these lyrics are. But actually, that's what's so catchy. Like, that's actually quite clever in some ways. But also, maybe it does speak to the fact that he's a teenager in his bedroom in Southampton writing these songs. Like, Well, exactly. You know, he's kind of in suburbia. He's cut off from the sort of edginess of the London scene and, and kind of getting that filtered down in a different kind of way. Hmm. What are the tracks that you think still bang? So I feel like I'm just going to keep embarrassing myself because I will constantly bring this up, but I've just been listening to Booty Man a lot. And <laughs> I just I just think it's so strange. Um, but like obviously all the singles are probably the songs that hold up the best without doubt but so born to do it i should say for context is named after a line from his favorite film um which is willy wonka and the chocolate factory um there's a line where he says you know um why do birds fly they're born to do it 
and Craig David has put himself in that position. Why is he a musician? Because he was born to do it. Um, this wouldn't be the first time he referenced Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in his career, by the way, but we'll we'll get to that later. Yeah, he just loves it. Um, but so on Booty Man, he takes the song from that film, Candyman, and turns it into the Booty Man can. Um, it, it's weird, but oddly, like... You're into it. I'm into it, yeah. It's interesting to me that you cite Booty Man as a kind of charming aspect of Born to Do It. Um, you know, it, it's still, somehow something about it makes you happy, makes you smile. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think I was reading the reviews from when Born to Do It came out. And I do think Rolling Stone wrote one of the funniest lines about it. And they said that the album is the sound of a horny boy becoming a smooth player. Wow. And yeah, I kind of think that that captures it. Like it is very teenage and silly, but there's something that's still kind of captivating about it at the same time. I, I mean... What struck me listening back to this album, because it's not really a, a record that I've revisited loads beyond the kind of key singles, um, Fill Me In and, and Seven Days, was just how incredibly cringeworthy it was. I think we should start by kind of remembering what the album cover looks like as well. For anybody who isn't familiar, can you describe it? So it's got... A young Craig David sitting there with his eyes closed. He's got his little goatee. He's got his beanie hat, his headphones on. He's he's just in there in the moment listening to his tunes. Importantly, he is also wearing a cream turtleneck. Is is that a look from the era? Is that just Craig being Craig? Some things we'll never know. I, I feel that like this image captures the fundamental uncoolness of Craig David. That and also the fact that, you know, he has named his album after Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And I know this is slightly jumping ahead in the Craig David timeline, but if you remember the video for What's Your Flavor, which came out in 2002, it's Willy Wonka inspired. The concept of the video is that Craig uh, has hidden golden tickets in some of his albums and all these girls are sort of rifling through the CD covers looking for golden tickets and then the winners are awarded with a trip to the chocolate factory where he, Willy Wonka, wearing a Willy Wonka style hat and sort of long coat is waiting for them. He understood the sexy potential of Willy Wonka. <laughs> He's very ahead of his time. In 2020, we have a guy on TikTok being sexy Willy Wonka. So, I mean. Exactly. As you put it to me in a text just this morning, Tara, uh, Craig David walked so sexy <laughs> Willy Wonka could run. Um, I think I will be locked up after this episode goes out. Um, but there's something fundamentally corny about Craig David. I think he had a duet with Sting. So did Shaggy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if uh, if anybody else remembers the uh, Sting featuring Rise and Fall circa 2002. Why was he already talking about rising and falling just two years into his career. It's really interesting, that album, because he has this real defensiveness about him. Like the opening track talks about how people are saying he's like too soft and that he's sold out and all this. And we'll get into that kind of stuff later, but just to circle back on this idea of, yeah, him being corny. I think what's really interesting now is that we, we do have a pop star who is known for being very corny, but 
who has learned how to lean into that. And I'm, of course, talking about Drake, who is famously very, very sincere. And it's like, it is embarrassing a lot of the time, but he makes it work for him because he's kind of in on the joke. And I think something that we can say about Craig at this time that doesn't help his image is that he's very sincere, but he also takes it quite seriously. He's so incredibly earnest. I mean, even in in the cover image, he's got his eyes closed, his sort of fingertips pressed to his headphones, and he's wearing a kind of expression of reverence for... I mean, I can only assume he's listening to his own record. I I hope so. (laughs) And sort of in a godly stupor at his own brilliance. (laughs) Um, It may be worth mentioning, this album was actually voted as the second greatest album of the 2000s by an MTV poll. And the first place went to Michael Jackson's Thriller. And Craig Craig was asked about this because it it was people on the internet voting for it. So someone suggested that, you know, do you think it was a Rickroll kind of thing? (laughs) And he was just like, no, there's just no way it would be that. This is just the power of this album. You know, he, he just very sincerely believed that people loved it that much. And I, it's no shade to this album because as I hope it's, becoming quite clear I, I I do really quite like this album I have a lot of love for it but to call it the greatest album ever at that time <laughs> <laughs> even better even better wow I mean yeah I, I personally think that's a reach um why was he talking about the rise and fall of his career in the year 2002 just three years after his career has launched I mean there's a lot of different things happening around the same time but I guess What's initially worth saying, going back to that point about the pushback against pop, is that, you know, Born to Do It is a wildly popular album. And therefore, this is viewed as uncool in the sense of... Uncool and and inauthentic as well, right? Mm. And this means that you're getting a pushback from different facets of the music industry, I guess. So on the one hand, you have places like Melody Maker, which... Let's talk about the Melody Maker cover, because... It is shocking. So Melody Maker is a very well-respected British music magazine. Um, Very well-respected, but mainly covered alternative music. And in 2000, in October, they featured this cover image, which, by the way, was, I think, the only black person they had ever had on a cover. Um, And it was a sort of parody of Craig David. It was a guy sitting on the toilet with his trousers down Um, wearing the Craig David headphones and beanie hat, Um, but it wasn't Craig David. The cover was kind of accompanied by this article that was something along the lines of 50 ways the alternative nation is fighting back. Um, And it had like this list of 50 things that were supposedly better and more credible than Craig David. They put out a CD to go along with the issue, which was, um, yeah, music that was better than UK Garage. The music journalist Simon Reynolds, who used to write for Melody Maker, he wrote a book called Bring the Noise. And in this book, he kind of contextualizes that cover, which was, I think, maybe not at the time criticized enough for being what it was, which was racist. But he kind of says that the reactionary nature of this cover was to do with UK Garage having a counterpoint in the sort of mid 90s. And that counterpoint was Britpop. And so UK Garage kind of represented the bursting of the the Britpop bubble. And so that's why all these kind of indie loving 
music writers retaliated. That's really interesting. And and I guess it's this idea of, like, because neither of those are pop music, right? But they're sort of in the underground, almost fighting it out for what is authentic, what is worthy of people's time and consumption. But I guess the other thing that we have to talk about at this time is, of course, Bo Selector, which launched in the year 2000. Break down Bo Selector. What, what is it? Well, I'm still not really sure what Bo Selector is. It's just like th- this guy, Lee Francis, doing all these weird caricatures of famous people. Yeah, it's, it's basically a sketch show. And the concept of it was that this character, Avid Merian, played by Lee Francis, would, he was like a celebrity stalker and he would go around and kind of interview celebrities. And Lee Francis would also play the celebrities with these giant caricatured kind of paper mache heads. And he would take the piss out of them and, and kind of do impersonations that were sort of repeat throughout the series. And, and Craig David was one of the most famous ones. And he always said his name. And um, wasn't he like, didn't he make him Northern for some reason? He did. He, he randomly made him Northern. Craig David's from Southampton. He's not from the North. I guess it's the sort of thing that, again, if from the get go, his team had just laughed about it and gone along with it, maybe it would have gone differently in terms of how it was viewed. Uh, but I guess at the time... He was offended, he wasn't was he? rightly offended, I think. Like, you know, it's a very strange, relentless caricature. And the whole show is called Bo Selector after the kind of Craig David ad-lib in Rewind. Like, obviously, particularly keeping in mind he was super young, it would have felt like such a huge personal attack. Exactly. And it's worth saying that, you know, Craig David wasn't the only celebrity who was parodied on the show. There was Kelly Osbourne, there was Michael Jackson, there was Mel B. But the Craig David one was really mean. If you watch the clips back, there was a sort of a cruelty to it that I can imagine might have had an impact on him watching it at the time. And, you know, it's over the years, it's something that he has had to talk about in his career. And it's only this year in the wake of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement that Lee Francis finally apologised and admitted that it was racist. And it's just like, okay. Of course, it's only in the year where people are suddenly recognising that racism exists. It's, uh, that's suddenly when you realise after 20 years of being called out on it. But okay. There are other things kind of happening around this time too. You know, you would think that despite being mocked publicly by multiple people, Craig David would continue to have a sort of upwards trajectory because he was sort of broadly embraced by the mainstream. But if this was happening in the pop world at the time, what was happening in the world of UK Garage? So what's happening in UK Garage around this time is kind of multifaceted because on the one hand, you've got record labels that are trying to push that sound and create that sound with their pop artists. You see the emergence of people like Daniel Bedingfield, who after his singular UK Garage song, got to get through this. Still a tune. Very much so. But after that, he's suddenly just doing pop ballads, right? Like he he's also someone who uses this to his advantage to get noticed. But you have Victoria Beckham and Dane Bowers doing Out of Your Mind. You know, you know there's... Um, <laughs> I genuinely had forgotten about that. It, it, it kind of holds up. Um, but, you know, there's this push into how do we make our pop acts embrace that sound a bit more. And so, you know, even Liberty X arguably start using sort of more interesting beats, I guess. But that... Yeah, so, who are Liberty X for our American listeners? They were a pop group made on a reality show as well. Um, and 
they do a very great cover of Shaka Khan's Ain't Nobody. But go YouTube that. Go YouTube that. Um, but at the same time, meanwhile, in I guess the actual UK garage world, there's a division happening between the old school and the new school. And the old school, you know, they're kind of into just the party kind of tunes. Whereas the new school, these MCs are coming through and they want to talk about what's actually happening like on the streets. They want to talk about darker stuff. Um, And so there starts to be some division between those two groups. And unfortunately, that does result in some violence. But as is very often the case with, I guess, when something becomes more popular, particularly when black music becomes more popular, so does the policing around it. And, you know, UK Garage was not the first time that we saw that and it won't be the last time, you know, we see it now with UK Drill. But there's this disproportionate policing, this disproportionate idea that there's violence associated with that scene, which is not true. But because of that, it stops being viable for major labels to want to have their artists be garage artists. You know, it's it's not a good look for them anymore. And so they start pushing those artists into more pop areas and Craig David by album number two although this is for multiple reasons he himself says that you know he doesn't want to be pigeonholed into one sound but he uh you know he's an R&B artist for album number two I guess so all of this is to say what he's doing musically is becoming less distinctive so maybe it's not surprising that by the end of the 2000s Craig David had faded away a bit and he felt less relevant his name was one associated with a relentless joke and people weren't excited about his music anymore. There was even a documentary in 2010 called Looking for Craig David, presented by Fern Cotton. This covers his Miami years. At that point, he had decamped to the US. He bought an apartment that was in a hotel. You could say he was pretty disillusioned with the UK at this time. Americans do like to celebrate success. That's one thing I can tell. It's a little bit different from back home. I know I've seen like guys in their car next to you and you could be like driving with a girl next to you and you're sort of going to dinner and they'd be like, oh, lovely car, man. Love the car. Wow. Whereas back home, there'd be some sort of abuse that gets thrown at you. Something that just kind of, especially if you've got a girl next to you as well, just to kind of put you in place. And you just think, why? Why now? But it just Because they're is, jealous. Is that why? There was a bit of jealousy, you know. But that's what I'm saying about culturally, I think, that in America they embrace success. Arguably, this is a low point for him creatively. That year, he released an album of Motown covers, which was not good. And legend has it that in that year, he also did a version of Fill Me In in which he sings pro-Tory party lyrics. When Huck Magazine asked him about this in 2018, he said he was in a dark place and easily influenced. At the time, he didn't have management. And he says, you know, he was doing some nonsense thing and uh, that he didn't know what was happening there. Again, I guess it's worth acknowledging the speed of his rise and fall at such a young age and what that must do to someone's mental health. After like so much attention to suddenly become a figure of ridicule and become pretty much irrelevant, I think must be really difficult to reconcile. But in the years since, he has bounced back, kind of. From around 2015, we see Craig David re-entering pop culture and being celebrated in some surprising ways. And honestly, who doesn't love a pop comeback? In 2015, there was a momentum that was starting to build behind Craig David again. A momentum that drove him back to his roots of UK Garage. 
Now, in 2014, the year prior, the BBC put out a cult TV programme called People Just Do Nothing. Tara, what do you know about this show? So it's a mockumentary series about a pirate radio station called Corrupt FM. And the sort of running joke about it is that it's got a very short broadcast range. No one actually listens to Corrupt FM. And it gently pokes fun at a group of deluded people with big egos. Hype on the rhythm, sir. What's I like? Corrupt FM's got the intellect. Yes. Trust me. Sam C. Grinder right now. DJ Beats right now. And we're representing Corrupt FM. Corrupt FM and it, the rest are relevant, yeah? yeah? Back on BBC Free. What does that have to do with BBC Craig David's Free comeback? Like so. Even though Corrupt FM aren't real, they do still do tours and shows sometimes. And they did a takeover of Mr. Jam's show on BBC Radio 1 Extra. And they also invited people like Big Nasty, Shola Armour and Stormzy to join them. And then Craig David arrives. Everyone gets really gassed to have him there. And what works is that he's actually in on the joke now. He says he's been studying how Corrupt FM make music for years. Like He's having a laugh and you can just see how happy he is, how happy everyone around him is. He's and relevant again. Of he, course he's happy. <laughs> mean. Um, and so then they start playing the beat from a track called Where Are You Now? And Craig David starts singing a version of Fill Me In. And it is sensational. Oh yeah. <laughs> I personally think it is impossible to watch this without smiling. It is a great video. I've also watched it many times. This version of Fill Me In obviously went viral and Craig David capitalised on the moment. He ended up releasing a track with Big Nasty called When the Baseline Drops, which had that kind of old school garage feel that you hear in his early tracks. The song did okay. It peaked at number 10 on the charts, although it was his most successful single since 2007. In 2016, I saw him play at Glastonbury. He was playing a relatively small stage in an area called Silver Haze, but it was rammed. People were crying, and by people, I just mean me. Um, and the following year, he, I guess that had made such an impact that he was on the Pyramid stage, which is the main stage at Glastonbury. And people loved it. And I think a really big part of the reason that people were so drawn to seeing him was ultimately that nostalgia, that love for those old songs. It was cool hearing him do new stuff, but everyone was like so happy when he did Seven Days, you know? Exactly. It's a song that everybody still knows the lyrics to. Yeah. So that kind of takes us to 2018, uh, when his album The Time Is Now was released. It debuted at number two in the UK charts. And it's a kind of album that is pop, R&B, but also delves into Tropical House, which was huge at the time. This is sort of off the back of Justin Bieber popularizing it in the kind of mainstream charts. And it's an example of how Craig David knew how to kind of jump on a trend and, and kind of parlay that and that album got to number two in the charts which is incredible after lying dormant for so long but it's weird because i don't personally know any of the songs from that album 
you know, I, I think it's weird because in spite of doing really well, I don't really get the impression that people are that excited about his new music. No, definitely not. Although I would like to do a shout out for Craig David's 2015 collaboration with Kate Nada, Got It Good, from the uh, 99.9% album. Yes, it, it, it also, I think Craig puts it on one of his albums as well, because of course, it. I think that is probably one of my favourite songs of the last decade, for sure. But with the exception of, you know, a couple of quite fun features, you're right, like Craig David's music is not, it's not that poppin'. We have to wonder if the excitement around Craig's return was just too dependent on the past. I mean, you have UK Garage coming back into fashion with producers like Predator and Conductor kind of taking the genre and moving it forward. But I think there's still a reliance on nostalgia and there are limits to that. And and you see that with Craig David. I mean, we talk about these tunes that we know from a couple of years ago, but it's now 2020 sort of two years since he's really done anything of note. Yeah, I mean, I guess it starts to beg the question, is there a difference between someone who's like a poster boy for something, someone who's seen as associated with a genre, but isn't actually the person innovating within it? Like, is that different? Is there a division between someone who is a pop artist ultimately and riding a wave versus, you know, actually being the person crafting that wave in the first place? I think what you're getting at is this idea of of subculture. And, you know, we talked about it at the top of the show. UK Garage was a subculture. And, you know, when that subculture goes mainstream, it's no longer a subculture. Yeah. And I mean, it's something that we see throughout the history of the music industry, really. Like once something gets popular, labels start pushing their own artists to go down a certain route to fit in with that. You know, that... That remains the case in present day. You know, you see it with the sudden emergence of Afro swing music in pop, for example. Um, But I guess what we've also touched on in this episode that I'm keen to get a bit more into, like, what does subculture look like in 2020? Well, it's a really interesting question. And I guess the biggest innovation in the 20 years since Born to Do It is the rise of the internet and the way the internet has changed and exploded how subcultures are disseminated. You know, it's not IRL anymore. Um, It's in Reddit threads and on Tumblr and like the way we access subculture and and the way that's been democratized through the internet has changed things. I, I also think that, you know, traditionally when we think of subculture and particularly like the kind of influence of subcultures on art and music and fashion it's so much about this sort of tribal style and aesthetic and I don't really think that's how people um, relate to each other anymore or kind of connect with each other I think things are way more atomized and um, people identify more with others who have shared politics for example or a shared point of view rather than people who like the same kind of music. There's crossover, as we talked about in the High Fidelity episode, but I think one of the biggest changes between the year 2000 and the year 2020 is this idea that um, aesthetic is the thing that links people.
If you feel like we did Craig David dirty in this episode, you can get in touch with us with your impassioned views at MH2020 on both Twitter and Instagram. And thanks to everyone who's reached out or shared an episode idea with us already. You can find the form in the show notes if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss. Tune in next Tuesday for our episode on the PC game, The Sims. And to hear a detailed list of all the different ways we murdered them. Hello, I'm Tom, uh, and I used to murder my Sims by setting a big hi-fi system in front of an open fireplace. Then, when that caught fire, putting a trail of pine furniture around the room and trapping them in a literal ring of fire. Twenty Twenty is a Message Heard production, written and presented by me, Simran Hans, and Woman Trouble Tara Joshi. Produced and edited by Jake Otayevich and Emily Wally. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley.